If you're a guest here with us, we're glad that you're here. Uh, this uh, perhaps would typify Berean that we really desire to uh, teach the word and do uh, the things that saints have always done, but we're always open as well to do some other things that are refreshing for the flock, and so that was today. All right, I'd like you to turn in your copy, if you would, to uh, God's word to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I hope that, of course, that as I say many times, this is not your first time in the word this week, that you've been daily in the word. If you are looking for a way to read through the word yearly, which we encourage you guys to do, please uh, stop by uh, the map, uh, the table that's under the missions map right there, pick up a trifold that'll take you through the word of God uh, day by day. That's the way God designed for it to be read. It will be to your benefit and encouragement as you understand God's mind. You see uh, his interaction with people in many different circumstances and his faithfulness and also his requirements and the holy standard then before your eyes all the time. So that's a blessing. We desire for you to do that. Of course, if you're just coming in and checking in with a message on a daily, on a weekly basis and not doing uh, those other things, and I've really failed in my job, primary job, which is to teach you how to do those other things. So be, uh, be enriched and be encouraged and uh, be motivated to be in the Word each day. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, preserve our time today, we're just going to get right into the Word of God. Uh, we started this, uh, of course, this section here last Lord's Day, and we're going to pick up where we left off. It's our third stop uh, in this study through the book of 1 Corinthians. It is um, titled, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, uh, a study through, verse by verse, the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, as is our habit. Specifically today, uh, the corporate testimony of the church uh, as it relates to lawsuits and conflict resolution, which is what Paul is dealing with here as he comes to this portion of his letter to the church in Corinth. Now, we've arrived at chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. The Holy Spirit is carrying Paul along to deal with the church uh, and the church health as it relates to their testimony, as we label this God's plan for a healthy church. Uh, and so he must deal with errors regarding conflict resolution. Study is very practical. It's very relevant. It also is probably the most exhaustive and clear instruction in the Bible concerning Christians and lawsuits. And uh, Paul is bringing it up here because they were suing one another. So let's look. In chapter 6, verse 1, we'll read through verse 11, which is where Paul stops this dialogue and moves on to the next section. So pick up your copy of God's Word if you would. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in some of the chairs in front of you, or just read in your copy that you brought with you. I'll give you some verse cues, and we'll stay together. Picking up is, does any one of you, in verse 1, does any one of you, uh, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, or are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the matters of this life? Verse 4, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes against to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brother. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, verse 10, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, verse 11, were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. 
So the target audience here, as we read that passage, is a community of Christians who are having conflict among each other and are attempting to resolve that conflict in court, presided over by non-believers. Kind of sums up the passage. And so not only were they in, their, in sin in their attempted conflict resolution, uh, they were throwing all the ugliness out there in front of the world in the form of a terrible testimony. Now, we looked at some background, as was our habit, as we started a new section. And we won't go back over that today, uh, other than to say that under Roman law, Jews and Christians, because they were considered a Jewish sect at that time, uh, were, would have been allowed to resolve many of their conflicts and issues of disagreement amongst themselves. Roman law was uh, advanced enough to allow them to do that, and we noticed uh, that just to make the point uh, that there was no reason why the church needed to be in the courts for civil matters. So there wasn't a need for the church to do that inside the courts. Uh, they could have handled the matters themselves. Uh, things like contract law and fulfillment and damages uh, were issues addressed regularly in the Roman law. And as we looked at a snapshot of how that would work out in, Ro in the Roman legal system, uh, we saw how all that would uh, play out. And as Paul is referencing these things, we made that connection pretty easily. But the Jew had a process, uh, Jews had a process given to them by God that dated back to Deuteronomy. And they used the law of God to answer their problems, to settle their family, their social, their economic uh, problems. And of course, the first century church also had these same guidelines. So we saw that it was likely that the real reason some inside the Corinthian church were not settling these conflicts between believers inside the church, but were instead uh, going outside to pagan courts would be that they would go to pagan courts and, and let the unredeemed judge between believers. And if they were asking for a large uh, unfair settlement, they would more likely be able to get them from those who were unredeemed. So that's kind of the idea and perhaps the motivation behind what's going on. So Paul has to address this. Now Paul got right to the issue that he wanted to, them to understand. Look back at verse one, if you would. Right, the issue is this, does any one of you, he says, when he has a case against his neighbor, and we talked about that word neighbor, it's another or other, and we're talking obviously inside the context of the church, so we're talking about another believer, not somebody who lives down the street, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And Paul uses that verb tomao, that word, do you dare to do this? Uh, basically, he's saying you're actually daring to do something so blatantly and sinfully wrong as going to law in the secular courts over conflicts between believers. And so with this language, there really is no room to misinterpret Paul. Doing this thing is a sin. So right away, just get right into it. What you're doing is wrong, he says. And so uh, the main principle I think that Paul wants to get across here, and we looked at this last time, taking another believer to a secular court over a conflict is a sin. And that's pretty straightforward. That's why Paul says, dare you go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And that's the issue that Paul starts with, see. The issue isn't initially that there was a matter of disagreement between two believers. That obviously could occur. Uh, and obviously Paul is dealing with that in chapter 1. That there's disagreements of, 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 uh, in concepts and preferences that, and people are putting out their, their, uh, their opinions all over the place. The fact that there would be conflicts I don't think is, is at any way surprising Paul amongst this congregation. Um, so that's not the issue initially. Uh, however, as a footnote, he's going to give them some other options besides bringing a case against a brother or a sister. Uh, but right now... I think his main issue that he's dealing with is, is taking your issue with another believer to a secular court. That's the thing, okay? Now, that's the whole part of the passage. Now, Paul says, I can't believe this is going on. I mean, it's really in shock. And with the wording, I think it's safe to say that Paul was taken by surprise. He's taken aback by what they're doing. He was taken aback because he was Jewish, and the Jews very rarely did this. They had their synagogues. They had God's law. They could determine what was right and what was wrong. They had some leaders in the synagogue who could help determine all of that. And so he was used to that. He was taken aback because he's a Christian. And the Christian community is supposed to be about love and about forgiveness. And, of course, those come into play when there's offense. 
okay? It's easy to talk about love and forgiveness and all of those other things unless there's an offense, and then love and forgiveness go out the window first. Uh, but that's the tough part, isn't it? Love and, and forgiveness is supposed to be a part of the Christian community. And, of course, so Paul's taking it back because that's supposed to be how they're living, and they're not. So believers giving it out in the same way that they received it from God, the love and forgiveness they get from God each day is supposed to be what believers are to do. And so... Uh, instead of loving each other, instead of forgiving each other, uh, they're stealing from each other, they're being unforgiving, and that's uh, that not only to get what they might have deserved, because there may be some uh, just compensation deserved, but more than they deserved. And then he says, before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Uh, so in other words, the magistrate, uh, the praetor that we talked about last time, and of course the judge that would be appointed, going before them, these are people who've never come to Christ, these are the unsaved, they don't know the Lord. He says, you wouldn't, why would you take this stuff before the unsaved? And the point Paul seems to be making here is this, why would you take these cases before unsaved people and not before saints? The saints are the ones who know the word of God, and therefore they know God's principles. The saints are the ones who have the Holy Spirit to give them understanding. They can allow the Spirit of God to lead in a decision. And now, in all of that, understand that they should have known this. These are not new principles. These are principles that are obvious in the word. And so Paul's going to remind them then as he moves on of why in doing what they were doing, he's rebuking them for being an open sin. And as he did that, he gives us then as we can glean some very valuable insight on the significance and the equipping of true believers. And that's a very exciting part as we look at verse 2. And he gives us first reason why they should not be going to, sec to the secular court of our conflict. So look at verse 2 if you would. Verse 2 says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? First stop, Paul asks a rhetorical question. Aren't you currently aware of this obvious point? And the answer is, no, you're not. He says, you should be, but you're a forgetful hearer. Same problem Paul told them about in chapter 3. You knew this, but you don't know it, and you're not acting on it. And so reason number one, the saints are going to judge the world. And we saw that, apart from this very clear statement from Paul, which stands by itself in clarity, that the saints are going to judge the world, so we can understand that just from this, that the scriptures are full of statements like this. And so Paul begins to connect the dots, if you will, for this Corinthian church in order to bring another solution that they'd forgotten or ignored or hadn't realized to help them settle their conflict. And then we saw Paul's second reason why the church should not be going to secular courts to resolve its conflict from verse 3. So look at verse 3 in your open Bible. As Paul continues to build this case for another obvious way to bring a solution to the conflict, in verse 3 he says this, Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the matters of this life? And I think that second point is just as clear a statement as the first one. It just shows how significant and how equipped and how valuable uh, the believer is to the church and to the community that's inside the church. It's a really clear statement drawn uh, from Paul here, and it's drawn out of the scriptures, and we looked at all those backgrounds last time, and you can catch up online if you'd like to do that. But Christians will someday sit in judgment and, or rule over holy and un un unholy angels, as well as uh, unholy, unsaved men and women who will be judged. And so that judgment passes down, and to some extent or another, believers will be involved in those kinds of things. But Paul's reason for pointing out the, out the equipping of uh, the, the future for all believers is to say, how much more the matters of this life. In other words, because this is true about you and because this is going to be what you're doing, how much more then would you be able to take care of these little things that you're dealing with right now? If the church is being equipped then by the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of the word and wisdom to apply it, then we ought to be able to settle our own matters down here. I think that's Paul's, that kind of sums up Paul's point. 
So he's coming to the Christian church and every other church he's come along since and merely makes this very clear. Don't take your, your conflict uh, between believers before secular courts because you are fully equipped, he says, to take care of this. Now, look at verse 4, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So, he kind of sums up his points here. So, if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? There's the question. And, of course, we saw last time, obviously, uh, there are secular law courts that deal with every part of life. But why would you, this is what Paul's saying, why would you use them, that's the secular judges, who are exotheneo, who don't compare, or who are not worthy to do what you can do inside the church. What you have in there is much greater. Another way to say it, and we ended with this last time, as Paul's point is to realize anyone then in the church who's a believer is more qualified to render a judgment between two believers who are in conflict than any judge of a secular court. Okay, And that's why Paul uses the strong word and says, listen, they're of no account in the church. In comparison to what you have, he says to the believers, these people you're going before are of no account. You're much more equipped to do this. So according to Paul, a believer inside the framework of the church with an understanding of the word of God, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, is better equipped to handle conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ than the most competent secular judge. So if you're going to reign over the world, here's how you can kind of, here's your takeaway, and for Paul it's a takeaway for the church. If you're going to reign over the world and you're going to reign over angels, you should be able to handle your own cases, which are much less complex than the ones you're going to be handling. Because you're going to reign with him and you have a high position and are esteemed by God. So Paul just says, look, in these issues, if it has to be, now mark this, if it has to be, if you have to have judgment, any growing believer in the church will handle it better than someone in the world. So keep it out of those courts. Now he's going to add to that and give them some other options besides having this conflict and having to have it out between each other. So Paul's going to give them another reason why they should not be going to law, though. Here's we get to verse 5 in the secular courts over conflict in the church. Here it is. Look at verse 5, if you would. I say this, he says, uh, to your shame. I say this to your shame. Reason number three, bad testimony. You can find this in your notes. Bad testimony, okay? You want to know why you shouldn't be taking it? You're going to judge, uh, you judge the world. You're going to judge angels. And listen, I have to say this to your shame. You shouldn't be taking it to court. This is a shame for you. It's a bad testimony. Paul says this in the strongest possible way, okay? The fact that I have to speak to this issue is a shame to you, he says. Uh, so Paul, when instructing, I don't know if you remember this, but Paul's instructing his son in the faith, said to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, a very bad testimony, you can copy that down. Then in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 7, here is what he says to Titus, okay? He says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Now, he just gives them a list to Titus, okay? And he says, listen, this should be kind of your, this should be your life. You know, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, purity and doctrine, so as you teach, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that, here's what he says, the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. The opponent is those on the outside. The opponent would be those who aren't redeemed. Those who are looking at your life and being critical of it, as you do these things, you won't be put to shame, okay? They'll have nothing bad to say about us, okay? Instead, these in the Corinth, the Corinthian church, are the ones in shame. So obviously this is not what's going on in Corinth, right? You want to avoid shame? Paul says to Titus, be an example of good deeds, be purity in doctrine, be dignified, be sound of speech, which is beyond reproach, and then you won't have any shame in your life, but that's the opposite of what's going on in Corinth. 
Uh, we see John's instruction in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. He says this, he says, Now little children, abide in him. So he's talking to the church in general. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. And here it is, not shrink away from him in shame in this coming. Okay, so the idea there is for the church to continue to abide in Christ, which would include time in the word, right? Letting it dwell in you richly, letting the spirit uh, be in control instead of uh, strong drink. All the things that we've talked about, same types of ideas. Let the church be consumed by being in Christ, doing what he says. When you say, in the name of Christ I pray, it just means that everything that is in Christ's name, that would be according to his glory, all the things that he would approve of, the things that would be in line with what his, uh, we would understand to be his holiness, let those things consume you. And then when he comes, you won't, be, you won't have any shame. You won't feel like, ah, I don't want him to see me. Have you ever been that way? portion of your life, I mean, the way things are going, perhaps in a situation at home or whatever, you're like, man, if, and you just thought, if Christ came right now, I would, that would be so shame. I'd be like, oh, you know. Now, you know, when we're not faithful, he's faithful, right? I mean, your, your salvation's not in jeopardy, and that's not what John's implying. He's just saying, listen, we don't want to have to shrink away. It's like, you know, when you were a kid, and like, you get caught doing something your parents exactly, I mean, they specifically said not to do. And then like you, they open the door, and there you are. You're dead to rights, all right? And you're like, oh, I mean, it's just so shameful, right? And so, you know, Paul, uh, John says, listen, don't do that. But this is the opposite of what's going on in Corinth. You want to avoid shame, he says, listen, abide in Christ. And you won't shrink away in shame when he comes. But that's not what's going on in Corinth. So just kind of see the both sides of that, okay? And now Paul's going to use this word shame seven more times in these two letters. And once again, you know, their reaction is, was completely out of step with biblical instruction. And so he has to use these, these, uh, these words to confront them. Instead of being proud... We've already seen this. They should have been mourned over the immorality that was in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. Instead of being proud, they should have had shame over their worldly conflict resolution. And so Paul's going to have to bring this to bear numerous times. And you can really see, he's really trying, and here's the thing. He's trying to revitalize their conscience. Okay? That's what he's trying to do. They're forgetful hearers. He wants them to have the Lord's mind on this thing that they're doing. They're pro they probably thought that what they were doing was God's will. I mean, I deserve what I deserve. You know, you hear this all the time. Well, you know, it must have been God's will. I get that because, you know, that's what happened. Even though it was in contrary to what we see in the word, right? And I've noticed many times over the years as a pastor, you know, people who would identify themselves as Christians actively doing things that are the opposite of a clear passage in the word of God. And sincerely believing that what they're doing is right. In the process, sincerely believing what they're doing is right, even though... The scripture will be clear. I'll present it in a way that, hey, this is what it says. And yet it's completely opposite of what's going on. And it's a serious form of deception. It's very difficult to lead people out of it because it requires an introspective reading of the word of God, which likely stopped occurring a long time ago. And that's what's going on in Corinth, see? An introspective reading of the word of God, a, a, a meditating on what the Lord's requirements are for those who love him, uh, had stopped. And so they were, their conscience was in a different place. And he wanted to revitalize that. He wanted them to, to see they'd been deceived. And last Sunday, last Sunday p.m., if you were here while John was teaching, I showed a passage I'd been reading during my personal Bible study from 2 from, uh, Kings. I'd like you to turn there. Will you do it? Just hold your finger here. I want you to read this. This is so, I think this is so relevant. It's a point that I made last Sunday night just during our sharing time, how relevant this is for the modern church. Now, as you're turning to 2 Kings uh, 17, and we're going to start in verse 7, the context is here, uh, the Assyrian conflict, uh, the Assyrian uh, conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. And at 722 B.C., they were carried off, and that was it, and that kingdom never came back. It's a, it's a significant place in Scripture, a very sad 
uh, full of a lot of, I think, remorse. That we, we can recognize that and say, wow, this is just so overwhelming. Um, and it's difficult to read. And as I was talking last Sunday night, I, it is hard to read these passages for me. It's hard to go through them. This is real people. These are people who were deceived. These are people who got off on a tangent and kept on going on that tangent. And here's where it ended up. And the Lord warned them, and he brought, he brought prophets in. He gave his word to them, and they still wouldn't hear. Now, here's the thing. And this is actually how the writer of 2 Kings is describing it. Verse 7, he's describing the carrying off by Assyria of the northern kingdom. And in verse 7, it says this. And you can read along in your copy of God's word. Now, this came about... Because, now this is just referring to the conquering of Samaria and, and of the northern kingdom, okay? Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. Verse 8, so he delivered them from that. This, this, this is the people who God did this for, okay? Now verse 8, and walked in the custom of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. So wicked people in the land before who left their habits behind and Israel started doing them. Wicked kings of Israel who showed them how to sin in a better way and they followed it. Okay, So they knew better, but they did these things. Now look at verse 9. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. So all the secret stuff they were doing, the Lord saw. Okay. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. In other words, to worship false gods. The Lord told them to worship in one place. Instead, they built high places all over the place and worshiped and sacrificed to false gods. So they were doing that. The Lord's just kind of listing them off here. Um, they uh, set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill under every green tree. Verse 11, and there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And so he adds that little caveat in there. Look, they did that, the nations before you, and we, I carried them off. I dispossessed them from the land, okay? And I gave it to you, and you turned around, he said, and did the same thing. Okay, so doing the stuff that people did before. Um, then he says this, verse 12. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. So he gave them 10 commandments. It's pretty clear. No other God before me. Okay, don't make any graven image. Don't do that, all right? Top, in, the, in the top 10, the top two, okay? Um, verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from evil ways and keep my commandments. So he didn't immediately bring judgment on them. He brought uh, people to teach them and said, hey, go ahead and you know, turn away from this. This is not what I want. Remember, this is not what I want. Um, and then my statutes, okay, so turn away from your evil ways, keep my commandments, keep my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. Verse 14. However, so it gets back, now this came about, so it gets back to that first statement, okay. However, they didn't listen, but stiffened their neck, mark this, like their fathers. And here's the important phrase, and I want you to catch this, Okay who did not believe in the Lord their God. I want you to pause right there, okay? Let's think about who we're talking about here as, as the writer of 2 Kings wants to make us understand this. And I think you can make the case as you look at that phrase that the fathers, the Lord speaking about here, would have self-identified as those who believed in the Lord their God. Wouldn't you say? I mean, I think you could make that case, right? I mean, those fathers would have been the generation that wandered in the wilderness. Those fathers would have been later the generation that came into the promised land. That, that's who we're talking about here, okay? Because now we're at the end of the time in the promised land. The end of the northern kingdom is now finished, and the southern kingdom is going to fall, okay? So I think you'd make the case that the fathers would have been that generation that wandered in the wilderness. Later, the fathers would have been 
that generation that came into the promised land, certainly self-identified as believers in God, and yet the Lord identifies the character traits of why he said they didn't believe in the Lord their God. Now pick up in verse 15. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. So they rejected all of it, okay? And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. Now let's make the connection, okay? And you can turn back if you wish to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Okay, so here you have the Lord identifying them as non-believers, and he's identifying them as those who didn't believe in the Lord their God because of their actions. And I think that this is the problem that plagues the modern church today. Certainly those denominations that embrace homosexuality in their leadership, uh, certainly those denominations that perform homosexual quote-unquote marriages, Christians that haven't separated themselves from the world but identify their actions as part of their freedom in Christ, which is really not freedom but instead bondage and and it's just being stamped in the image of the world. People in churches who would self-identify as Christians, but they've turned away from the biblical authority concerning creation and embrace a culture of death that touts a woman's right to choose death for an unborn child, and on and on and on, and, and so many other things that just ring with the same notes we see in 2 Kings. And I think the Lord would refer to them as those who don't believe in the Lord their God, even though they would self-identify like the fathers in Israel would have, that they believe, except they don't do what the Lord says. And so the Lord just says, you don't, because you neither do what I say, nor are you worried about my judgment, nor about the promise of goodness to those who do what I say. Those things don't enter into the thought process. You're doing what you want to do, and you've rejected what the Lord has said, see? The Lord says, turn away from your evil ways, keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded all your fathers, which I sent to you through my servants the prophets, and the people reject his statutes and his covenants which he made with their fathers and follow vanity and become vain and go after the nations which surrounded them. So you have this dynamic going on in the church today still, see? And if Paul were around, he'd just say, I speak this to your shame. He comes into a congregation that embraces those kinds of things I just talked about and others. He'd just say, I speak this to your shame. You can see Paul standing up in the pulpit. I say this to your shame. You're living in open contradiction to what the Lord says you're supposed to do. I say this to your shame. And even to a lesser degree where he's speaking to believers in the modern church who would seem to identify with sound doctrine and yet perhaps even read Philippians chapter 2 verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, continue to do all things with grumbling and disputing. How is that different? It's exactly what Paul's dealing with in this church, isn't he? Here's this church identified as believers and Paul's taken aback because why? They have these conflicts between them, and they're going right out of the church, right before secular judges, and saying, judge this between us so I can defraud this guy of whatever amount of money I need to compensate myself for my pain and suffering. Or believers today who read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, and we've talked about the definitions of all those words, and they're not nice, to be put away from you along with all malice. So in other words, all the motivation to do the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the talking behind the back and the clamor and the slander. And be kind, verse 32, to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So there's the standard. That's how high the bar is. Just as Christ has forgiven you, that's what you do to each other. And yet what's happening is we continue in bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice and we're not kind, 
and we're not tenderhearted and we don't forgive each other, which is exactly the problem that's going on in Corinth, right? Forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you and they're not doing it. So how is it different? Well, that's, that's, I guess that's my point. It's exactly the same. We identify as believers, read the passages, and I've only picked out two of 200. And we're doing that in opposite of what the Lord says to do. It's exactly what the church in Corinth is doing. It moves right into the, right into the modern era. And the whole general idea, as Israel was rejected, the, the northern king was rejected, they were rejected because they didn't obey his commands. And so you got churches full of people who call themselves Christians, and yet don't do what the word says and somehow believe that's reconciled in some way. You see? And most likely, the reason why that is, is there's no active reading and no active introspection going on of what the word says, which is why we encourage you constantly to be in the word. That stopped long ago, and there's a lot of self-affirmed action, self-affirmed words. I think this is right. This is what I think we should do. And if Paul were here, he would say, you know, I speak this to your shame. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're doing this instead. See? And I use those illustrations just to say that the problem that Paul has here is the same problem that still exists in the church today. God's commands are for us, not for him. And I say that all the time to you. Okay? Lord, just make me more kind. How about, beloved, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you figure out how you can do something kind to somebody that you've been mean to? That's a good start. Start in your own home. Okay? Lord, take all the bitterness and wrath from me. How about you remember, just as Christ also forgave you, because God was so gracious, that you forgive somebody else? See? That's how that works. That's the dynamic between what the Word says and what you do. That's quality reading as opposed to quantity of reading. Okay? I'm not so concerned that you read through the trifold exactly on every day as much as when you understand what the trifold, as you read that passage the trifold indicates for you to read that day, and you say, I'm not doing this, and then you begin to do it, you see? That's how that works out. God's commands are for us, not for him. And if someone doesn't have an active time in the word each day, then the actions and words of carnality become ingrained responses, and that is what's going on in Corinth. The acts of carnality are the ingrained responses because we're not holding up the holy standard and we don't see what the word says and compare it to what we think and how we're responding to other people. And it's very hard to convince someone of the problem without their first being revitalized in an active, interactive, quiet time in their life. That has to happen. So Paul knows the problems he's up against. He's been he taught them for 18 months and they had Apollos teaching him who was, who was marvelous in the teaching of the word of God. It says, after Paul. And yet here they are. So he says, I say this to your shame. In other words, you know better. And you know what the commands were. And just like Israel of old, I gave you people to tell you what the commands were. And I gave you my words so you can read them. And Paul says, and you had my letters. And you had my presence. And you had Apollos. And you understand what's supposed to be going on. And yet you're not doing it. And he's trying to break them out of this rut of self-delusion. Which many Christians find themselves in. That they think that they're spiritual and yet they... They openly contradict just two of the things we said. Grumbling and disputing. They do everything that way. And they have bitterness and wrath and they talk behind each other and they have anger and clamor and slander and malice and yet somehow think they're self-deluded into thinking they're spiritual. And wonder why there's no power of God working in the Holy Spirit in their life to see any fruit come from it. That's exactly where the Corinthian church is, see? 
So he's breaking them out of this rut of self-delusion. It hasn't occurred to them that what they're doing is displeasing to the Lord. As hard as that is for Paul to understand, he's like, how could you possibly be doing this? And you can kind of see his frustration in his comments. Now Paul lists a couple reasons why they should feel shame. So we're going to put the reasons why they shouldn't be bringing uh, other believers in conflict to outside sources on pause just for a second. And there's shame here in three different things. I want us to see those things, and then we'll get our last point of why you shouldn't be bringing uh, fellow believers to uh, those outside the church. So here's the first point of the shame. A couple reasons. Look at the last part of verse 5, if you would. Is it so, Paul says, that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? And he, he says, I say this to you, shame. Why? why? Reason number one, you've got an absence of maturity. You've got an absence of maturity. Is it so? I mean, Paul's like, seriously? Is it possible that there isn't among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? You've got an absence of maturity. I say this to your shame. In other words, you don't have one person who can make a decision among you. Nobody there can do that. And once again, Paul uses sarcasm. The strongest way that he can reprove the church, he uses sarcasm. Is it so you don't have a single person? And you know Paul's thinking as he's writing this question to them, you know, Here's the thing. Some of you have been telling everybody how wise you are. Uh, you've got your groups, and you've got your opinions, and you've got your worldly way of approaching church problems, and, and you don't need me, and you've got all the gifts, and you, you're really going, and things are happening, and you're so open-minded and tolerant and everything that you just keep an openly sinning person right inside the membership. You've got all that going on. You're telling me, you who have everything, and you're so wise and all of that stuff, that you don't have anybody smart enough to settle a case between your brothers when you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels? See that? You can just see Paul like, wow, you have to take this to the world to do it? How is it possible? He says, I speak this to your shame. You don't have enough maturity to take care of this, see. And in this passage, we can see Paul really indicating, along with verses 2 and 3, that the church should be using wise, godly believers to help solve conflict that comes up. I mean, it just comes over and over again. You're able to do this. You could have taken care of this issue, see. And we emphasized that before, but because Paul's uh, indictment here, I wanted to mention this model of Christian mediation that's supposed to be the norm in the church. If you have to come uh, to a conflict issue between another believer in Christ, there should be this mediation thing that can go on inside the church because there should be wise people, wise enough to do this discerning work. Now look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Second reason why um, there should be shame here. And I speak to your shame, he says to this Corinthian church. But brother goes to law with brother. Reason number two, if you have a lack of understanding. So you have an absence of maturity. There's not a single one in there who can actually do this. And number two, you have a lack of understanding. The fact that you didn't realize this as a sin is a shame to you. You didn't understand the obvious. And by Paul's language, this is obviously taking Paul aback. As we said, how can it be that you didn't understand the basics of Christianity, the basics of forgiveness and kindness among believers? Like Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. You didn't, under, you didn't understand the basics of Christianity. Brother goes to law with brother. Be devoted to one another. And remember, as we went through Romans 12, as we get to about verse 8, and we work all the way through maybe the next 10 or 12 verses, that really has to do with interaction in the church and the inhabiting Holy Spirit and what those fruits will look like among believers. And one of the things Paul says is, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of the believer. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I say this to your shame, you have a lack of understanding. Here's the understanding. So those who've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, 
So who's the audience? Believers. Everyone who claims the name of Christ, who's come to a right relationship through God in Christ. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is the trademarks of Christianity. That's why Paul's so aghast. You didn't understand the basics of Christianity. This is what Christianity is supposed to be like. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Now mark this, beloved. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Mark this. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. I think that would cover what's going on in the Corinthian church right now, wouldn't you? You have a complaint against someone in the church and you're taking it to law against, with outsiders. But Paul says the basics of Christianity is this. Put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Mark this, whoever has a complaint against anyone, that's pretty broad, isn't it? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, that's really broad, okay? Here's the bar. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. There's the bar, okay? It's not whether or not I can do it. It's not whether or not he deserves it. It's not whether or not you know, I can pull it off and actually be real and not hypocritical. Just as the Lord forgave you, so you are to do it. Now, here's the thing. That means when you think, I'm just going to put it right out there in simple terms. When you think you've been wrong, catch this. You don't have to say anything. Get that? I think that's what you could pull out of that passage, right? When you think you've been wronged, you don't have to say anything. Paradigm shift inside the modern local church, right? Who thinks they have to follow up with every single offense, every time. Except the basics of Christianity, Paul says, the Corinthian church missed, and I say this to your shame, you have a lack of understanding of what basic Christianity looks like, and there it is. 1 Peter 4, 8. And once again, I'm just barely scratching the surface. Above all, that means above anything else, okay? Above all, all right, up there, above everything, keep fervent in your love for one another. So in other words, your intent on making that happen, okay? Do you want to know how you continue to love each other? you want to know how you can love someone who isn't very nice to you, who said offensive things to you? You do something that expresses love to them. Kindness, gentleness, you know, take care of a need, whatever it is, okay? Be fervent, so you have to be active. This is something you're engaged in. God's commands are for us and not for him, okay? Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Because when you're fervent with one another, you don't necessarily have to say anything just because somebody offended you, okay? Be hospitable to one another without complaint. In other words, show acts of kindness and don't complain about doing it. That gets rid of all the self-talk, doesn't it? Well, they don't deserve this. I shouldn't shouldn't have to do this. I'm doing this because I'm supposed to love them, so I'm going to go. That's what that's talking about, okay? Uh, It's going to be hard for me to forgive because, you know, they really hurt my feelings and, you know, Paul says to the Corinthian church, it's a shame to you that I have to speak this way to you, Paul says, because you should have known the characteristics of Christian brothers. Now, last part of verse 6. Here it is. Here's the third one. Third reason why they should be ashamed, and that before unbelievers. Now, these are just obvious, okay? Paul's making it clear why they should be ashamed, so they understand the shame they should be feeling, okay? So he says, so you take brother, you go to law against brother. That's a shame to you. Should have known the basics of Christianity, that you don't have a single person who can decide between uh, disagreements. That's an absence of maturity in this last one. You embarrass the church and portray a bad testimony. 
that's a shame to you. Paul says he stands before the Corinthian church. He says, that's a shame to you. You did it before unbelievers. In other words, here's the thing. Will anybody be flocking to be a part of the Corinthian church in light of the dirty laundry they're hanging out for everybody to see? You think it's going to be a pretty popular place? Wow, they got it going on. I mean, these are a bunch of loving people who really forgive each other, and it's a very broad congregation who just takes in whatever differences there are. No, they're hanging it all out there for everybody in Corinth to see. They're acting just like their unredeemed counterparts who just had this legal system going on and constantly suing each other, just like today. You're acting just like, he says, you're acting just like the world. So how popular do you think your testimony is going to be? When the church is doing this, how different from the world is it? Uh, so this Corinthian church betrays a, an abundance of pride and self-centeredness and greed. It betrays a lack of maturity in light of its equipping to solve its own problems. It betrays uh, this lack of understanding of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And so the church is embarrassed and it's exposed as an apparent fraud. And Paul says, I say this to your shame. Now let's move on. First part of verse 7. And we get to reason four why believers should not be taking other believers to the courts over conflict in the church. He says, actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. So after the parenthetical comments, if you will, of the reasons the church should be ashamed, Paul moves then back to the reasons why the church should not be going to the secular courts to resolve its conflicts from verse 7. Paul gives us another point to build his case for some other obvious ways to bring solution to the conflict. So he says this, actually then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits against one another. So reason number four, no matter what happens, you've already lost in God's court. Regardless of what goes on, regardless of whether you think you were served, regardless of whether you think that was God's will, that you got a big settlement from someone else, the fact of the matter is that you've already lost in God's court. Whatever happened, the fact that you took it, maybe you went to court and you lost in court, that's still that you already lost before you ever got there. And Paul's kind of summing up his admonition here. Paul's given them all this instruction before. They understand the basic principles of the Christian faith. They just aren't doing them. If they understand that the testimony of the church is affected, they just don't care. See. Now Paul's built up to this point, so now he gives some other options We've already implied these, and we've already directly stated them um, out of Colossians 3.12, so they're going to be obvious, and we just uh, burn on through them, and we'll be done. Now, here's the thing, okay? He's built up to this point. Now, he's going to give them some other options for handling conflict between believers that in the middle of a prideful, selfish church probably sounds like foolishness, or perhaps... The questions turned on the light for them. Maybe, and I like to think about the upside, maybe as he made these suggestions, they said, ah, that's what we should have been doing. Instead of like, no way am I going to do that. I'm hoping it's the other side. So here's, here's what he says, okay? Verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Now we're talking about two believers inside the church, okay? Here's the other option, Paul says. Now we already looked at it out of Colossians chapter 12. If you have any complaint against anyone, right, just forgive each other. Paul's already said this numerous times. This is common teaching for Paul. You have to know that as Paul spent 18 months at this church in Corinth, he went over the stuff that he's giving to every other church because you see these same themes because people are people. So here's the other options. Did it occur to you that you didn't have to continue in the conflict at all? That's what Paul says. You could have just accepted the wrong. And that's, again, a paradigm shift, isn't it? You could have been defrauded. Apostaeo, a verb that has to do with robbing someone. You could have just let them take you. Paul says you could have just let the other believer keep what's yours, as we talk about these official 
legal issues that we see in the Roman legal system. You could have just let them keep what was yours. You could have just let them not pay for what you gave them. If you were completely in the right and the other person had what was yours and you let them keep it to your harm, that's what the word is indicating. In other words, you were right and you sold them something they never paid you or you gave them something they never gave anything back or you did something for someone and they didn't honor their contract or whatever it was. The idea there is you let someone do those things to your own harm. And it really places the testimony of the believer. Listen, the testimony of the believer and the testimony of the church and ultimately the gospel far above our understanding of what's fair in our own eyes. So that gets elevated way up and everything else is way down. Okay, You could have just been defrauded, he says. You want to know how God wants you to resolve the conflict, Paul says to the church? Just accept the wrong. That's what you could have done. I mean, isn't that what he said in Colossians? If somebody has an offense against you, somebody's done something against you, you could just let it go. First Peter 4, Peter says, listen, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That has to do with offenses, see? It's easy to say, well, yeah, we just love each other until somebody offends you. And then love's out the window, along with forgiveness. And I'm just out of here, okay? And I'm not coming back. Or I'm just going to hold that grudge. Or I'm just going to keep stirring up trouble because they deserve it. You could have just been defrauded. You could have just let it go. You know, here's the thing. Just accept the wrong. God's still on his throne. That's Paul's, that's Paul's point. You know, he's going to take care of you. You know, isn't it exciting to be a Christian just from that standpoint? Right? I know some of you know this. You've, to, you've told me about it, okay? Stuff that you've gone through. It's exciting to be a Christian just from that standpoint to know that God's operating on your behalf. God's on your team, okay? God invests his power and his wisdom on our behalf. So what do we have to worry about? And what Paul is, is doing is really a simple matter. He's giving them God's way to settle these things. Yes, there could be conflict. Yes, it may be legitimate. You're taking it to the outdoor court, to outside the church for courts. That's a sin for you. Don't do it. Okay? You, don't you have somebody in there that could do it? You're going to judge angels. You're going to judge the world. You could take care of this. Okay? But you don't have anybody to your shame who can do it. And you don't, uh, you're going before unbelievers. And all this stuff I just say to your shame. And no matter what, you've, what happens, you've already lost in God's court. Here's the other option. Okay, here's the other option. God invests his power and his wisdom on your behalf, so what do you have to worry about? Wouldn't it be better just to be defrauded? The testimony, your testimony, the testimony of the church, and ultimately the testimony of the gospel and its changing power is way above whatever the conflicts may be right here. And what Paul's doing is just very simple. Do it God's way and he blesses. And I'd rather have uh, God's blessing than money, wouldn't you? There weren't many... <laughs> I'd rather have God's blessing than money, right? Even if you don't believe it, just do it like this, all right? All right. Rather have God's blessing than money. Listen, I'm just share something with you. I don't think I've told anybody about this. When we lived in, I was pastoring in Florida. We went into a, a lease purchase agreement with another believer. And um, it was a two-year lease purchase agreement, and we agreed on a purchase price of a home in South Florida, close to the church. And uh, when we got to the time of the sale, the other person decided that he wanted a considerable amount more money than we'd agreed on and refused to sell the house to Laura and I. Now, we had three little ones, and you know, we were barely making it, and we spent extra to get in this relationship so we could, we could do this. And um, as we paid that inflated rent over two years, we, we were looking forward to being able to have that as a down payment, and so we could go conventional financing and purchase a house. And um, he decided he wasn't going to sell us that house for the agreed upon price because we moved out of the time during Hurricane Andrew when price 
prices were low and, and we were giving him a good fair price for his house. And now several years later and housing market's going back up, he decides he's not gonna sell it to us. So he got greedy, he wouldn't return our down payment, wouldn't settle with us to buy the house. Uh, we didn't take him to court, he, he was a believer. And I'll tell you what, beloved, the Lord taught us a very hard lesson in 2001. A super hard lesson. And I knew these passages, I taught through these passages, and then when it came time, what did I want? I wanted vengeance. I wanted to be in court. I wanted him embarrassed. I only wanted my $20,000, I wanted damages for all my court costs and everything else. But that's not what we did, okay? And I'm telling you, that was not easy. I laid awake at night many nights struggling with materialism, which really is what it was, see? And figuring out you know, how we could get it back and how we could make it work. And, and so we had to move out of that house and we had to go to a different house. And the Lord actually uh, moved us out of South Florida about two years later. And so we didn't even know what was on the horizon. We didn't know we, had we bought the house, we'd be selling it in two years. We didn't know any of that. We just knew that that was a really hard lesson uh, to learn. And, and all that teaching out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 was really academic until we got to the point where we had to do it. And then it became reality. I say this as a shame to you that you can't even figure this out inside the church. And he didn't want anything, this other believer didn't want anything to do with any kind of figuring it out of the church. He, he wanted what he wanted. He wasn't going to sell the house for any less. And that's what it was going to be or nothing. Okay? So it's all academic. It's forgiving. It's all academic. Excusing somebody who's offended you. It's all academic. Loving, covering a multitude of sin. You have to do it. Okay? Everybody says, yeah, we should do it. Yeah, we should do it. No. That's my money. I have a little family. I don't make much money. You know, we're paying rent here, extra rent, so we can get into this place. No, the Lord showed me how the lesson had to work out, and that wasn't easy, I'll be honest. But I'll be remiss if I didn't say this, that the Lord has given that money back to us from his own means with interest many times over, over time, after I had absorbed the lesson and got myself on an equilibrium with what had gone on and had forgiven us. And listen, brother, that's around his neck, not around my neck. I can let that go now and just say, okay, you know, and you, know, and you want to go to the Lord and say, you know, wh what about me? He took what didn't belong to him. He owes me that. And then the Lord may bring to your mind, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. You don't have to worry. God knows what he owes you. God's going to take care of you out of his resources, which are infinite, Right? And we've had to learn this lesson many times, beloved. Many times. God will take care of you. He wants you to leave it with him instead of trying to mess with it yourself. And, and these principles are all connected. You know, let him take care of it. You know, he may, you know, he may not take back 15% or the 50% or whatever. You know, just let him make it right, okay? And he'll make it right. And you just do what you're supposed to do, okay? And he's going to make all things come out equal in the end. God knows what's best. Are you willing to just put that on him and just say, okay? So instead of going to a secular court with another believer, you can leave it in his hands, have his blessing, and no doubt it was for some in the Corinthian church, it's an easy to get caught up in the world and see what we need to hold on to, and you know, this is very important, and this is important for our financial future, and whatever, and you get all these arguments why you wouldn't do what the Lord says, and Paul says, I just say this to your shame. The fact that you didn't understand that that wasn't what you were supposed to do is your shame, and then you went on and you just multiplied it, and he said, don't do it, Okay. Don't do it. God knows what's best, okay? He can make all the things right. He's the great judge, right? He can make it all equal out. So instead of going to a secular court, don't do it. And, and, you know, and that chance to sue can be awfully attractive, especially when you, you, you appear that you've got the law on your side, see? 
And God knew it would be a stumbling block to us, which, which is why Jesus said while he was on earth, you know, and once again, all academic to you have to trust him with it, right? Do not seek that what you will eat and what you'll drink, and don't keep worrying about those things for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows you need these things. Matthew says, you're not summed up of what you have and where you live and what you wear, are you? See, Matthew says it in a question and asks, lets us answer it. Luke does it this way. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You have that in your future, see? Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which don't wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See? All academic until you have to give some up. Right? Or you have to give faithfully or you have to do whatever it is. See? It's all academic until that happens. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's going to supply all your needs. He's the great judge. He's got it taken care of. Right? He's the one who can figure out what's owed. Okay? And he knows the big picture. Now just a few comments have addressed some questions that we had. I know we're a little bit over, but I'm going, to, I'm going to go quickly here. Here's a couple, there were a couple questions came up last time, and um, I, I want to address them really quickly, okay, because they're very, they were super good questions, and I think we, want to, we need them right now before we finish up this section. Here it is. Number one, the passage deals with believers taking other believers to a secular court over issues of conflict. Believers with other believers over issues of conflict inside the church, namely things that we looked at under Roman law. In other words, Breach of contract, fulfillment issues, disagreements over property, payments, liability issues, those kinds of things, okay? That's what the passage is dealing with, believers against believers in a secular court, okay? Number two, it doesn't prohibit believers having to take non-believers to court in certain things. It's not addressing that, okay? It just prohibits defrauding and robbing through the courts things that we're going to look at in just a moment, okay? So it just addresses defrauding somebody. Okay? It just addresses taking more than you're supposed to have against a non-believer. Because Paul says, not only do you do that, you do it against your brethren too. Okay? So this doesn't prohibit believers having to take non-believers to court over certain things. Okay? Remember, all government is ordained by the Lord. And we looked at that in Romans 13. So I don't want to go back through it. It's there to provide justice to one degree or another and to keep law and to keep order. And so it's there to be used by the believers. And this doesn't prohibit a believer taking a non-believer to court over just things, okay? Number three, there may be times, and this is very important, when a believer must be in court with another believer. Here's some issues, okay? Some things that may require the court, things like divorces and child custody, okay? Those are things that our government requires be documented in a court of law. So it may be as hard as it is for the Lord to accept divorce, and he says he hates it, we know the Lord hates that, that it might not be the answer, and court can be avoided perhaps because the couple seeks biblical counsel with the elders or another Christian and may be able to reconcile. So you may not find themselves in court with divorce. They may not find themselves in court with custody. So that could be alleviated if, if some counseling is sought. But sometimes in this world it becomes unavoidable and, unavoidable and sometimes very bad things are happening in that relationship and perhaps to the children in that relationship. And the Lord allows for a biblical divorce and so it must be. And those things may find two believers in court. That's because our government requires that, and we have to obey the laws of the land, okay? Another thing that may find two believers in a court of law, criminal issues that require the court and law enforcement to be involved. 
Okay? So we're not saying that criminal issues should be swept under the carpet, which happens in churches. We're not saying that things that violate the law uh, of the land can be just settled right between the church if it requires law enforcement to be involved. There are times when Christians might find themselves in court opposite another Christian. I remember another time down in South Florida where we were pastoring, where we had, we had a big Christian school, and I remember that um, one of the children who came into class uh, had been obviously abused. And I had to call the police, and they came, and they made a report. And the parents made an appointment with me and castigated me because I didn't follow 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and bring it before the elders inside the church. I wasn't supposed to bring it back before the elders of the church. The first person I was supposed to call, according to the state law, was law enforcement and make a report. And they were very mad, and they left the church and took their children. Um, and I'm sorry for that, but one of those things is that the law of the land required us to do that, and so that's what we did. And so there may be times, there may be circumstances uh, about those things, and if you're unsure, seek out wise biblical counsel about how to proceed uh, so you, you don't find yourself violating biblical principles and moving yourself out of God's place of blessing and into his place of chastening. Okay, and, and the scripture does not say this. We're going to end with this, okay, and I've got more, but we'll just pick it up next week. The scripture doesn't, uh, does not say, and I'm not trying to say, that the Bible forbids believers forever being in court under any circumstances. It doesn't say that. That's not what we're talking about. But what we can take away is that if the issues are monetary, if the motive is getting my due or getting my revenge or recompense or I'm going to take them to the cleaners or however you want to express that, then it would be a violation of these principles that the Apostle Paul is teaching the church in Corinth and to us today. Okay? And so that's what we see in the scriptures. Now we're going to pick up verse 8 next time because we're at way out of time. We had a rich day today and I'm very grateful to the Lord for being able to be here and witness the stuff that went on. Okay, so we're going to close in prayer. Just allow the Lord to, um, to just work in your own heart and just kind of black that out if you would back there and we'll go on to those next things next time. Now uh, let's bow in prayer if you would. Lord, we thank you today for time in your word. We thank you for the clarity of, of uh, what you've expressed through the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth and how Relevant it certainly is for the church today, for us in particular, particularly as we think about personal conduct inside the church and what it means to be a believer and what uh, the trademarks of those who know Christ are to be and how that solves conflict many times without it ever having to be addressed. And so, Father, I pray as uh, it be your will that we become the church more and more conformed to the image of Christ, a reprint of him, that we might be grown up in all things unto Christ, as Ephesians tells us, and that we might be in this mature way be able to produce fruit, work together as one joint, and, and uh, all that supplies the other, and the church be a, a very effective and, and filled with fruit as we desire to do these things according to your will. Father, we thank you for uh, the convicting nature of the message, for the hardness of it, but also because you are full of grace that you can uh, set the reset button for us, that all things fall under, for those who know you, all things fall under the blood, and there's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. And so we're grateful for that. Even if we've made mistakes in the past, we can start new today. And I pray your Holy Spirit will be at work, whether it's personal attitude, uh, holding on to offense, or, or uh, perhaps you've sued another Christian in the past, and, and you did it outside the courts for some monetary thing, and you find yourself in direct violation to what God has said here. You can ask for forgiveness, and then you can follow his will and guiding and doing whatever uh, retribution needs to happen. So, Father, uh, as always, we desire to be walking with you. We desire to be in your will, know what it says, what it means by what it says, and how it applies. And, Lord, I pray that you continue to do your work by your Holy Spirit in us today. And we be praise and honor and glory for your worthy. Let your, your Son, Jesus, be, uh, have his rightful worship.
Lord, we look forward to his return where he'll be established as the true king and all names go back to the right individuals. And we give you praise for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Uh, just quickly, uh, I don't I think I have to my...